0: Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis. For conservatives, Jim is back from the NRA annual meeting in Indianapolis, and we'll be hearing a lot more about that in our bad martini, unfortunately. But, uh, Jim, let's start with our good martini, and it's not too often that uh, mass shootings are in our good martini. But the shooting at the synagogue in in Poway, California, near San Diego on Saturday, could have been a whole lot worse. And the fact that it wasn't is because of heroic actions taken by a number of of people, uh, one person died. Four people, I believe, were shot in total. Uh, the person who died was a woman named Lori Gilbert Kay, and the reason that she died is because she put herself in between the gunman and the rabbi at this particular synagogue, which was having services on the final day of Passover. Here's the rabbi, Israel Goldstein, talking about Lori Gilbert Kay.
2: In my own interpretation, Lori took the bullet for all of us. She died to protect all of us
1: then the shooter himself was uh, confronted inside the synagogue and then outside the synagogue the person who confronted him inside the synagogue was a guy named oscar stewart here's what he had to say about the initial confrontation
2: i was in the sanctuary and um i heard um i heard gunshots i saw everybody running so i ran to the lobby where the guy was with the gun. And I, um, I saw him discharge two more rounds. As he was discharging the rounds, I ran up to him, and I yelled at him, and he dropped his weapon, and he ran out, and I chased him out of the, out of the sanctuary. I was in the military, and I think that's, that's what I just—I ran to fire, and that's what I did.
1: And then he followed him outside, and that's where the Border Patrol agent, the off-duty agent that you might have heard of, also came on the scene with the, the weapon he was carrying.
2: And I chased him out into the street, into his car. I punched his car. Uh, then he, he was going to pick up his weapon again. So being in the military, I knew that you have five feet. Of a weapon is ineffective within five feet. So I was trying to get that five feet in. I got my. So I, I saw him pick, going to pick up the weapon again. So I punched the car. He dropped it and turned the ignition of the car on. Now where was the border patrol agent? He was the, in the congregation. He I'm came out when he came out when I was outside. He came out and he yelled, um, "Clear back! I have a gun!" And so I, I moved back. I'm glad he was trained.
1: And here's what uh, Oscar Stewart had to say about his own actions.
2: I'm not. I didn't plan it. I didn't think about it. It's just what I did. So, I'm, you know, they say I'm a hero, I don't think I'm a hero. I just did what I, I just did. What I did.
1: Yeah, you're a hero, uh, whether you want to admit it or not. Uh, amazing actions by Mr. Stewart, by Lori Gilbert Kaye, by Jonathan Morales. That's the name of the off-duty Border Patrol agent and, and so many others who are courageous there, Jim. So uh, obviously we have another deranged person who wanted to uh, target Jewish people. Sadly, one life was lost. But uh, when you look at what happened in Pittsburgh and what this uh, person was clearly trying to accomplish, it was not nearly as bad as it could have been thanks to heroic actions.
0: Yeah, um, Greg, when this happens, uh, there's a mass shooting or an attempted mass shooting, it can be frustrating when you hear somebody say, ah, if only there had been somebody there with a gun. Uh, there are times it might seem a little, I mean, it may be accurate, but it may seem like um, insufficient sympathy to what happened or, or wishful thinking. But what happened here demonstrates that actually you know, having someone armed on the scene complicates the effort of the mass mass shooter uh, who generally wants to kill as many people as possible. It is unspeakably tragic that this woman lost her life, and she herself indeed was a hero for attempting to save the life of the rabbi and everyone else being targeted. Um, But the presence of these two guys and their ability to confront the gunman prevented many more people from being shot and probably losing their lives. So uh, that's the silver lining in this. Whenever things like this happen, you inevitably hear some people saying, well, it's time for gun control. Um, I have a piece on the editor's desk right now that basically is looking at not just the the gun control aspect of this, but this trend of angry young men who uh, sometimes they are radicalized by the Internet. Sometimes they're just angry at the world. Sometimes it's uh, kids in high schools. They they reach some sort of state where they believe the only way to deal with their problems is to pick up a gun and start shooting. Now, we're going to obviously have a full investigation into this. We're going to see was this someone who was legally able to purchase a gun? Did this person steal the gun? Did this person, how did the person get the firearms? Were there warning signs missed? Um, Kind of surprising about this case. This was a, uh, a, a, uh, this young man came from a family that was, uh, you know, intact. And people said, people who knew them, family, said that they were, you know, considered a a loving family. Uh, The kid had achieved very well in school, was taking AP classes, accomplished, uh, uh, accomplished pianist, and apparently had, had Jewish friends when he was younger. So this is not someone you necessarily would have expected to get radicalized and turn into some anti-Semitic maniac. Um, so we're gonna—it's gonna be interesting to dig into this. But I think there—I there, think the heart of this is a real concern about what's kind of feeding into someone's mind and giving them this mentality that this is what they're supposed to do, that this is what's going to solve the problems in their life. But anyway. Uh, A really sad and awful story in California would have and could have been so much worse if these two men weren't there. So bravo to them, and thank
1: God they were there, Greg. Absolutely right. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And usually we're not talking about what a terrible annual meeting the National Rifle Association just had. It was uh, pretty jubilant the first couple of days. The, The president spoke there on Friday. He announced he was removing the United States as a signatory to the U.N. uh, arms treaty, uh, small arms treaty that's supposedly uh, designed to end the proliferation of weapons to bad actors around the world, but uh, could potentially infringe on the Second Amendment in more ways than one. But then uh, the bad news started to happen at the NRA convention. And what didn't appear to be happening at the start of the week was happening by the end of the week. NRA President Oliver North announcing... I don't think voluntarily that he would not be seeking a second term as president. And then as you write in the morning jolt today, Jim, there's uh, financial issues on a number of fronts. First of all, I'm quoting now, the organization faces an intense investigation by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who has already called the organization a terrorist group. Ordinarily, the NRA's best defense would be to point to James' incendiary denunciations and call the investigation a politically motivated witch hunt. And NRA Executive Director Wayne LaPierre said as much at the convention Saturday morning. But both LaPierre and Ali North have traded letters accusing the other of impropriety and financial mismanagement. And recent investigations by The New Yorker quoted former employees of the NRA and its primary public relations firm Ackerman McQueen, painting an ugly portrait of self-dealing and runaway spending. James might be pursuing a political vendetta, but that doesn't mean there's nothing substantive to investigate. So, uh, Jim, this turned into an ugly match between LaPierre and North. Uh, North is out. LaPierre might be, but it's uh, going to take a while, according to your explanation today. So heading into a presidential election year, it's not where you want the NRA to be.
0: Yeah. um, And and, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think a lot of people would like to turn this into uh, just a Wayne LaPierre versus Ali North fight or, oh, here comes the liberal media trying to paint the NRA as looking bad. It's neither explanation, which I've seen floating around on social media, really accurately summarizes what's going on. And if people can spare a little bit of a deep background on this. Um, Ackerman McQueen has been the NRA's primary public relations firm for decades, and it's generally been a a productive and happy relationship between the two. Uh, it's very lucrative for Ackerman McQueen. I believe financial documents that were in the New Yorker said there was a neighborhood of close to $40 million a year. Now, Ackerman McQueen does a lot of stuff. It does the print advertising. It prints several magazines. If you've seen NRA TV and my numerous appearances with my friend Cam Edwards, they produce all that stuff. Um, Dana Lash's program all of this stuff is done under Ackerman McQueen with this very big contract. Now, this is not happened something that happened overnight, but bit by bit, year by year, there have been some folks at the NRA have been asking, "Hey, are we getting our money's worth out of this?" This is a lot of money to give to a PR firm. How is our money being spent? And according to Oliver North's account, in September 2018, several NRA board members came to him and said, "You know, we're trying to get answers from Ackerman McQueen about how they're spending our money and they're not being responsive." About a month ago, the NRA sued Ackerman McQueen to get access to financial documents. Um, I don't know. And look, you know, obviously, this is, you know, I, have, I have friends in both organizations. I think highly of both people in both organizations. But it's a very awkward and unusual spot when a organization sues their PR firm. And when they say, how are you spending our money? And the PR firm effectively says, we're not going to tell you. Uh, that usually is a very ominous sign. The De- New Yorker article detailed a whole bunch of ways in which there was a lot of money being spent by Ackerman McQueen in ways that folks might question. One allegation is the claim that there's been about $200,000 spent on Wayne LaPierre's wardrobe. LaPierre says, look, that's over a 15-year period. I can do math. That comes out to more than $13,000 a year, which seems like a lot. <laughs> um Oliver North uh, was getting paid about a million dollars at least to do a television show. We may remember, folks may remember he had a weekend show on Fox News Channel, you know, War Stories. Uh, The idea was he was going to be doing a very similar type programming for NRA TV and it would be like American, I think it was, you know, Oliver North's American Heroes or something like that. Well, as of this conversation, or at least the last report I had seen, Oliver North had only done three of those episodes, had been completed. And again, he was getting paid a million dollars a year. Now, of course, you think about who in the top of the NRA would be in charge of watching over Ackerman McQueen and make sure that they're spending their money accurately. Well, it probably would be folks like Oliver North, the president, and Wayne LaPierre, the executive vice president. So the argument is that Ackerman McQueen is... Um, uh, The fox is guarding the hen house, so to speak. In other words, the people who'd be in charge of making sure that Ackerman McQueen is giving them their money's worth are among the people getting paid lots amount of money or having their clothing budget uh, taken care of by Ackerman McQueen. Um, The lawsuit. So this internal split is bad. And a lot of people wonder if this is, you know, uh, a salvageable relationship. Then, as you alluded to, the the New York State Attorney General, uh, Letitia James, who has openly stated she, she hates the NRA. There's really no two ways about it. She's called it a terrorist organization. She has an absolute desire to see that organization shut down. Well, the New York is uh, the National Rifle Association, uh, its charter is in New York State. So, for the, the, the New York Attorney General, has a very wide range of latitude about being able to audit them and to look at the books and make sure that they're doing everything that complies with New York State laws for a nonprofit organization, which, by the way, the NRA is. It's conceivable that when all is said and done from all this, the NRA loses its status as a nonprofit organization, which would be very bad for them. Um, that's you know that of course there's probably a long way before that i don't know exactly how this is going to shake out as of, we are having this conversation but i'm no longer down in indy uh the board meeting was held on monday i came back last night according to folks who are on the ground they're now in closed session it would not surprise me if there are some mm, frank and heated exchanges going on behind those <laughs> closed, those uh, closed doors um there are some nra board members who are really upset about all this and look at the obviously the With the New York State uh, Attorney General, you know, getting ready to kick down the door, she's already sent out subpoenas, she's already ordered to preserve all financial documents, Um, they could be in for a long and ugly and very embarrassing investigation. So, um, still kind of up in the air as to how this all shakes out, but I think it's, you know, obviously this this organization is likely to have at least a year's worth of turmoil. And oh, by the way, 2020 presidential election is approaching, and um, if I'm President Trump, I don't want the NRA having to deal with all of this instead of... uh, Uh, Focusing on getting up, preparing to get out the vote in November 2020.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And uh, if you're spending a ton of money on lawyers, that's money you can't spend elsewhere. So, not good, not good. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim, and back to anti-Semitism, unfortunately. Let's move on to the New York Times, which uh, took a lot of heat in the last couple days and deservedly so for a political cartoon that ran, which depicted Benjamin Netanyahu as a dog leading a blind President Trump. So basically, Trump's doing wherever Netanyahu leads him. And then uh, this obviously got a huge backlash as being anti-Semitic, portraying the leader of Israel as a dog. And the New York Times bravely blamed it on a mid-level editor who had no supervision. We'll see what happens with that. But while they're still dealing with the fallout from that, there was another editorial cartoon over the past couple of days. And this one's a little bit harder to interpret, but it looks like Benjamin Netanyahu dressed— kind of in monk's robes, but from a Jewish perspective, maybe that's a different term there, Uh, and taking a selfie while holding up what looks like one of the tablets from the Ten Commandments with the uh, Star of David on it. So, uh, Jim, what is up with The New York Times?
0: It's not quite the explanation we heard from the IRS of rogue low-level employees (laughs) in Cincinnati. But now we're being told, ah, you know, first of all, this is the international edition. It's not the domestic edition. Uh, one employee who wasn't being properly supervised made the decision and that, you know, um, first of all it's a little unnerving, like <laughs> folks, I know, I know there are days it's hard to tell, but everybody edits what I do at National Review, um, which by the way <laughs> means I have somebody to blame when all the typos get through um, but all uh, this, this recognition, that, like uh, the, first of all, the whole idea of I, I guess that the cartoonist wanted to say, Trump does whatever uh, Bibi Netanyahu wants him to do or, or Bibi Netanyahu is leading Trump or something like that. And there are different ways you could have, like, yeah, you know, we can argue about whether that's an accurate assessment of things, but fine. You want to make that argument? You can. I think once you depict someone as a dog, and oh, by the way, you put that big Jewish star on the collar to, to demonstrate that, um, and the portrayal of Trump, the whole thing just kind of drips with contempt. And even that's there. But now you start getting into this, you know, ah, the Jews are controlling things. The Jews are conspiracy, you know, the the kind of conspiratorial things that you uh, see in the uglier corners of the Internet. And it has this long, long and ugly history of leading to violence. Um, I think Brett Stevens had a terrific column on this where he points out it's not just uh, this was a bad cartoon and they shouldn't have published it um it's also that but i also you know, i'm really how much anger is coming towards the new york times and i, I in all the coverage greg i haven't seen what, who the name of the cartoonist is right because i say this as a person who spent a lot of years aspiring to be a political cartoonist and for everyone who was following uh ned the alien back in the year 2000 uh <laughs> thank you for all, all those fans out there like there's a lot of really bad cartoons out there <laughs> Once where you know the old Herb Block giant labeling who your person is and basically <laughs> making the point of you know this person they stink you know it's just kind of this uh, uh, facile uh, uh, you know almost childish snide. There's there's no wit. There's no surprise. They basically, go, hi, I'm a cartoonist and I hate this person is basically the subtext uh, of, of the cartoon. And I just I don't think it really you know to me it's a waste of, of newsprint space. It's a waste of um, you're not really adding something or bringing anything that's all that surprising or, or thought-provoking to, uh, uh, to the readers of the newspaper. Um, but Brett Stevens' point is like, look, this is the New York Times, which would bend over backwards to, to you know, avoid ever printing anything that would be construed as racist, as xenophobic, as sexist. Um, you know, their, their goal is to never offend any particular ethnic group or religious group. Except this one, (laughs) apparently apparently this one, all of their, you know, and no doubt the editors who signed off on this and the one person who selected this all think of themselves as being good people who are not full of hate and who would never traffic in uh, uh, hatred towards a particular group. But for some reason, this image did not raise any red flags in their mind. And I think Brett Stevens is right that this is a very revealing moment that, you know, out of all the, I also like just how bad were all the cartoons that didn't get picked on that day, Greg? (laughs)
1: And correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is the same New York Times that uh, refused to print the Muhammad cartoon from Charlie Hebdo, even after that was the premise for the terrorist attack, supposedly, against Charlie Hebdo in in Paris. Uh, You go back, when I was working with the Hillsdale student newspaper called The Collegian, many, many moons ago, uh, it's now one of the top papers in the country, I assure you it wasn't then, Uh, we had the writers go over it, we had the section editors go over it, we had the copy editor go over it, uh, and so... We had all these different layers of making sure things were done right. So the idea that the New York Times, even if it is the international edition, didn't have this uh, sort of plan in place is absolutely absurd. But uh, Hillsdale's got a lot of excitement this weekend because they've got a new chairman of the Board of Trustees and he's famous. So you might have to buy a vowel to find out who he is. (laughs) Uh, But uh, (laughs) Vanna? (laughs) <laughs> no, but hopefully she'll be on campus once in a while. That'd be fun. Uh, no, Pat's Ajax. Pretty exciting. Uh, anyway, uh, as we as we depart here on, on Monday, we do end on a sad note because long time Indiana Senator Richard Luger passed away at the age of eighty-seven over the weekend. Uh, he was first elected in nineteen seventy-six. He was elected six times. Uh, he was actually defeated in a primary in a race for his seventh term against Richard Murdoch and 2012, Murdoch went on to lose that race. That's how we got Joe Donnelly, who then lost six years later. Dick Luger, for the most part, a pretty quiet guy, uh, pretty strong rating on conservative issues on, on most issues across the board. Uh, we weren't thrilled with him when he uh, was such a strong advocate, I believe, of the START II Treaty in the early days of the Obama administration. Uh, got tagged a little bit as a guy who basically moved to Washington towards the end, but universally uh, praised as a guy who was very kind and decent. And uh, a lot of the Democrats talking about how he worked across the eye well on nuclear proliferation and so forth. Jim, what are your thoughts as you learned of the passing of Dick Lugar?
0: Well, yeah, just an observation. Because, yeah, yeah, there was a by the time it came down to the primary versus of him versus Richard Murdoch, um, a lot of folks on the right, uh, this is kind of in the height of the Tea Party era, had found Lugar to be kind of become a squish, become a moderate, um, and you know they nominated Murdoch, and we see how well that turned out for us. So maybe maybe that wasn't the right call back then. But I the think about even earlier. I want to say there was Michael Crowley, of the New Republic, and if not, there was some writer at the New Republic who went back was after. Sometime after 9-11, um, and you may, people may forget, Dick Luger ran for president in 1996. Yes. Uh, this was a fairly, you know, big Republican field. Arlen Specter ran that. It was, if you were an old senator, you were basically running in 1996. <laughs> yep, Bill Graham. Uh, yep. Know, besides Dole, you had Phil Graham, uh, who we all loved. And, and, you know, um, uh, you know, so so Luger got almost no attention for his bid. Uh, you know, it, it was one of those where he was in very quickly and he was out very quickly. <laughs> but the theme of his campaign was he was concerned. Obviously, he was always involved in nuclear arms control and efforts to lock down, um, uh, you know, the nuclear arsenal in Russia after the end of the Cold War. Uh, he, you know, this was this, he believed this was a, an ignored issue that was not getting nearly enough attention, and that the single biggest threat facing America. This is 1996. We're starting to enter the dot-com boom. Things are looking pretty good. He says, look, this seems pretty good, but we are facing major dangers uh, in the years to come. We need to focus on these arsenals and locking them down and the general overall threat of terrorism. And among them, I believe it was Michael Crowley, you know, at the time he said, look at Dick Luger's panicking, freak out, you know, uh, nervous Nelly, chicken little, the sky is falling, etc. et cetera. Et cetera of course, this was a few years before the 9-11 attack. So Michael Crowley wrote a, you know, gosh darn it, Dick Luger was right and I was wrong column. <laughs> so what I love, the Crowley willingness to go back to, you know, and say, oh, you know what? Wow, I was totally wrong on this. Lugar knew what, he, knew what he was talking about. We've now been through this terrible terrorist attack. We're now very concerned about terrorists getting their hands on weapons of mass destruction. Um, we, you know, sorry about that. I should not have downplayed you. I should not have poo-pooed, you know, uh, these concerns Luger was doing. And, you know, I don't think Luber had ever, like, you know, like taken a a nasty victory lap or anything like that or called anything about He was far too much of a gentleman. Um, But he was a guy who was not chasing the headline of the day or whatever was the hot topic du jour. He looked at these big international issues, and he was looking at threats that were gathering when nobody else was. So um, we'll raise a glass to Dick Luber. We'll miss him. Um, Even when we disagree with him, he was a true statesman, and the world could use more men like him.
1: Yeah, very well said, Jim. And uh, you see the glowing statements on both sides of the aisle, and, and, and certainly from strong conservatives, uh, everyone from Vice President Pence to former Senator Dan Coats to Mitch Daniels, uh, a lot of folks, uh, a lot of respect for for Dick Luger. So uh, condolences to his family. Jim, we're actually together not only for one day this week, but uh, hopefully for the entire week. Talk to you tomorrow. I'm home again, Greg. <laughs> see you tomorrow. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.